Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. So please go to podsurvey.com slash pantsuit and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you a little better. That way we can show advertisers just how great our listeners are. Even if you've taken a podcast listener survey before, this one is specific to our show, so we really need you to take it too. Plus, once you've completed the survey, you can enter to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash pantsuit. Thanks so much for your help. Between Syria, North Korea, and a Supreme Court showdown, the news this week won't stop. We try to bring some depth to these discussions on today's episode of The Briefcase. It's Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Hi, everyone. Sarah is still on vacation, but those from the left, don't worry. You have a representative at the party today because our chief creative officer, Dante Lima, is with me. Hi, Dante. Hey, Beth. How's it going? It's good. It's good to have you on. Thanks. It's been a it's been a little bit since I've been on the show. Uh, I want you to know that I am breaking a family rule to be here. Uh, Laura and I have a strict no podcasting alone with a person of the opposite sex rule, so had to twist her arm a little bit to come on the show today. Oh, thanks, Laura. Uh, We certainly (laughs) have had the reaction to Mike Pence, but in light of what is going on in the world, I cannot spend another second thinking about Mike and Karen Pence. Yeah, let them do them. That's right. (laughs) They can do them. So, speaking of what's happening in the world, 
I had the opportunity to talk with one of our listeners, Carrie Boyd Anderson, who is an expert on the Middle East. And she's going to tell you how she came to be an expert on the Middle East and give us all a good overview of what's happening in Syria. So before Dante and I get into the news of the week, I want to share Carrie's thoughts with you, which I found so valuable. So I'm talking with Carrie Boyd Anderson, who is a Pansy Politics listener, hooray, and also a foreign policy risk consultant. Carrie, can you tell everyone sort of what that means and a little bit about your career, which I have to admit that I am like super jealous of? <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to talk with you. Um, yeah, so I'm, a, I'm in the political risk industry, and essentially what that is are people who help um, public sector organizations or private sector companies understand the political and also related to that often business and regulatory risks that they would face in different countries. So for example, when I'm working with private sector companies, if they're looking at investing in a Middle Eastern country, they would want to know, is that government still going to be around in a few years? What are the types of reputational risks? There's security risks. Um, and re regulatory issues and that kind of thing that they would face. Um, so that's what I do. I currently am an independent consultant. I have my own company um, doing that type of work. Before that, a couple of years ago, I worked for a long time with Oxford Analytica, which is one of the main companies in the political risk field. So I've been mostly doing Middle East political risk for a long time. Did you just know early in your career that this is what you wanted to do? No, I always wanted to do foreign policy issues and, and especially Middle East issues. I studied in the Middle East as an undergraduate. Um, and so I really started off my career more on international security issues, working with think tanks and in journalism. Um, then after I did my master's degree, my, my husband and I were living in London and he decided to do a PhD. And I decided, okay, one of us has to make some money while we're here. <laughs> um, and then I learned about Oxford Analytica. And that was really my end to this, this whole new world of political risk consulting. Well, I have to tell you that every time we get a message from you, I know that we're going to learn something from it. I feel like your insights are always super valuable. So I'm happy that we get to share them with all of our listeners now instead of it just being enriching for Sarah and me. So you reached out earlier uh, in the week, maybe it was even last week, when the Trump administration started signaling that removal of Assad in Syria is not a priority for this administration. Can we back up a little bit? And if I'm a person who kind of has a sense that something bad is going on in Syria, but I don't really understand what that is, can you give, and I know what a complex question this is, but <laughs> can you give sort of a 50,000 foot view of, of the Syrian civil war? Sure. Um, <clears throat> so the Syrian civil war started in 2011, 2012. And so this was one of the multiple consequences that came um, through the 2011 Arab uprisings. I went throughout the Middle East, started in Tunisia, I went to Egypt, and then spread across much of the region. So Syria also had its own uprising. It started off as a peaceful uprising against the Assad regime, which has been in power for decades. Bashar al-Assad, the 
um, the president, such that it is at this point, came into power in 2000. He was the son of the previous ruler who had been there for a very long time. Um, so the Syrian people, there was this peaceful uprising. There's a sectarian element to this as well. The Assad regime is primarily drawn from the Alawi sect, though it did have a number of Christian and Sunni members as well. Um, so there, the uprising eventually took on a characteristic where it was primarily Sunni Muslims against the Alawi regime. The Christians were kind of caught in the middle. This is a vast oversimplification, <laughs> um, but in a general sense, that's kind of what happened. Um, the Assad regime cracked down very quickly and very hard on that peaceful protest movement. And it very quickly developed into a civil war. The Assad regime lost control of much of the country. The rebellion became uh, militarized. And very early on, the Assad regime was trying to force the international com community into having a binary option. Um, they, want, they tried to portray the war and they tried to turn it into a war in which the only options were support Assad or support terrorists. Um, and from the beginning, that was an incredible oversimplification, but that's their strategy that they've been taking for uh, since really the start of the war. And of course, it's, it's an extremely brutal war. I think at this point, about 400,000 people have been killed. Um, there are almost 5 million refugees who have fled Syria. There are um, more than 6 million Syrians who are displaced within the country. It's just completely ravaged the country. So I have two kind of follow-up questions. Do you have any sense of what really motivates Assad? I mean, is this just about the consolidation or um, holding on to power, or is there something more at work with him? And then also... I struggle. I've I've read about that binary choice many times and thought, how does Assad distinguish himself from terrorism? Like, what's the upside of Assad to the international community, <clears throat> at least through his lens or the way he's portrayed it? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I think basically what Assad wants is, is power and regime control. Um, and earlier in the war, when the regime for a while, they were really losing a lot of territory. Um, they were never completely pushed out, but they were losing a lot of territory. And that was also a matter of survival. I think for a lot of Alawis um, and regime supporters felt like that was a matter of survival. But at this point, with um, massive help from the Russians and Iranians, without whom the Assad regime would not have been able to retake a lot of territory. Um, at this point, I think it's really about the Assad regime trying to have control over as much of Syria um, as possible. The way the Assad regime has tried to distinguish themselves between terrorists, this is a very typical thing among Middle Eastern autocrats. Um, it is very, very typical that they try to say anybody who opposes their regime are terrorists. They know the reaction that the word terrorism gets in the West. And so they use it. They try to widely label anybody who opposes them as terrorists. And Assad is basically doing the exact same thing that, that several other leaders in the Middle East have done. Um, I don't think there really is any upside for the international 
community in him. But the argument that he would make is he is the only option for stability. If you don't want refugee flows, if you don't want space for ISIS and Al-Qaeda, um, your only option is to have Assad retake the country. That is his argument. And so you mentioned the brutality of the conflict in Syria, which has just um, escalated once again. So it's probably well known by most of our listeners um, that Assad previously used chemical weapons um, against the opposition, and that has happened again this week. So all of the things that Assad seems to be promising if he remains in power are ringing kind of hollow, right? Because we have a Mm -hmm. refugee flow. uh, We have chemical weapons being used against people. What is... What is the Russian and Iranian interest in propping up his regime? Right. Yeah. So the Iranian interest. um, So both Syria and Iran have been allies for a very long time. But before the Syrian civil war, that was a case of two sovereign states that had an alliance when it suited their mutual interests. Um, But since then, has become a much closer link. The Iranians have really provided the essential on-the-ground military forces. So one of Assad's big big problems was manpower to fight the war. And the Iranians have brought in, um, they provided a lot of their own soldiers. They brought in Iraqi Shia militias. They brought in Shia militias from Afghanistan and Pakistan as well. Um, So they've provided a lot of the -the on-the-ground military manpower and their interests um, initially was really to partly to to bolster an ally so they have this sense uh, this kind of what they call sort of an axis of resistance so what they view is basically Iran and Syria and Hezbollah um, resisting the United States essentially in the Middle East Iran provides and has for a long time provided weapons to Hezbollah and they ship those, they transfer those via Syria. And so they wanted to keep that corridor open. So that was originally their interest. I think their interest has probably expanded a lot since then. They have a lot more influence in Syria and can use Syria now to have an outlet to the Mediterranean through Syria as well as still supporting Hezbollah. Um, Russia's interests really started, so initially, Russia has a military base in Syria, uh, which is, its I think it's its only military base in the Middle East. And so initially, it was primarily looking to defend its military base and to defend enough of Assad control that it, that Russia could maintain its military base. But I think eventually it realized that the United States had really created a vacuum in Syria by not doing more. And Russia decided to take that as an opportunity to really constrain U.S. action in Syria and to try to assert itself more into a regional role. So can we talk a little bit about the U.S. policy on Syria under the Obama administration? Because regrettably, All we've really heard from the White House post this chemical weapons attack is that it's somehow President Obama's fault uh, for having been weak on Syria. I have been critical of President Obama's handling of Syria uh, because I I did think that we should have acted more decisively after the first 
sort of red line statement. Can you give a little bit of perspective for our listeners who might not have been as engaged in politics when that happened um, about kind of what took place and how the U.S. has and has not been involved in Syria? Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I will. I agree with you. I think that the Obama administration really should have done a lot more. And some of Sean Spicer's recent criticisms of the Obama administration are fair, I think, in the sense that there were windows of opportunity in which the United States had a much better opportunity to fund and to really assist moderate rebels. Um, that window of opportunity has become much more narrow. Um, also, I, you know, Spicer has also criticized Obama for not sticking to the red line on the chemical weapons, and I would also generally agree with that. Yeah, I think the big question is, just because Obama messed up doesn't mean that the Trump administration has no responsibility in the situation. But yeah, essentially, kind of what happened... So on the chemical weapon side, I guess I should say today, there I think it was today or yesterday, there was a significant chemical weapons attack by the Assad regime. Not the first, um, but this is one of their more significant ones, um, clearly directed against civilians. So that had actually started in 2012. Um, Obama had said supposedly there was this red line. But then what eventually happened is instead there was a negotiation where Syria agreed under international supervision to have its chemical weapons arsenal removed and destroyed. And so that was, in theory, done, and the U.S. did not take military action against the regime. Um, It's quite clear at this point that probably not all of those chemical weapons were removed, um, which is not really a big surprise. Um, the Obama administration also could have done a lot more to support moderate rebels. They did do some. There, there were a lot of complications with that. The Obama team's concerns about that were completely valid. But I think the problem is when the United States does nothing, that's also a policy. I have one question for you. It felt to me, and I I would like to know if I am being fair or unfair in this assessment, it felt to me like the United States dabbled in Syria under the Obama administration (laughs) and that it that maybe complete inaction would have been even more effective than what we did, because I almost think sometimes we the, the way we act or don't in Middle Eastern countries. I think about Yemen in this way, too. It's like we almost create a sense of, okay, the United States is on this in the world, but then we're not really. And I just, is that a fair perspective or am I missing complicating factors, which seems totally realistic to miss things because (laughs) all these situations are so thorny? Yeah, it is. And I should say the Syrian war is incredibly complex. It's really hard to talk about uh, briefly. But um, I mean, I think it's fair in the sense of I wouldn't have said that inaction would have been better. Um, I think it is fair to say that the United States under Obama dabbled in Syria. I think the, the problem is, we're the United States, people expect things of us, whether we do it or not. Right. And so not doing it still sends a message. It's still an issue. Um, I think that's something the Trump administration is going to be learning now, too, but not doing something when you're Washington is still doing something. 
Um, but yeah, I think the Obama administration, they were very concerned about arming moderate rebels because they were worried that those weapons, that if, if we did arm moderate rebels, they were worried that those weapons would fall into the hands of more extreme militant groups, mm-hmm. which was a completely plausible concern um, and has happened in Iraq, for example. They were worried that we couldn't properly vet moderate rebels. But in the end, what happened was they did work with some moderate rebels, but they had this very extreme vetting that very few people actually met. I shouldn't say extreme vetting. That has a whole other meaning now. But but they, they vetted them so carefully that it was really hard for anybody to meet this extremely high standard that the United States set. De facto, what's ended up happening is the United States has really relied heavily on Kurdish Syrian fighters. So today, as we are planning to go after ISIS and Raqqa in Syria, we're very dependent on, on a Kurdish force, which has been very capable and certainly proved itself very capable against ISIS. Um, but that creates a whole bunch of other political issues in Syria. So I feel like that would be a that's a whole other show, right? Like the, yeah. the United States relationship with the Kurds and, and what Kurdish even means. And um, so, so let's talk about the Trump administration then, because I think it's really difficult to make heads or tails of what the Trump administration is thinking about Syria other than wishing to say not our thing. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think the Trump administration's primary approach to Syria is to focus, really, they want to view the Syrian conflict through the lens solely of defeating ISIS. Um, They've been very clear about that. They want the United States, they want U.S. allies to focus on defeating ISIS. And on its own, that's not a bad thing. Certainly, defeating ISIS as a territorial entity is a great idea um, and should be done. The problem is that this conflict is so complex and ISIS is fueled by the conflict and the Assad regime is one of the main actors and maybe the biggest actor in terms of fueling the conflict. Um, and, And the Assad regime has very intentionally created this situation where you have these extreme rebels and that's not entirely Assad's fault, but they've certainly worked hard to do so. Um, so the big question is, if ISIS is defeated as a territorial entity, which appears fairly likely, but then what? Al-Qaeda is there also. Um, it keeps changing its names. The Al-Qaeda group it is now called Tahrir al-Sham. It has a military force, and it would be happy to take over the land once ISIS is defeated. So would a bunch of other groups. And ISIS, even if it's defeated as a territorial entity, can then still merge as it can still remain as a terrorist organization. Um, so if just focusing on defeating ISIS leaves this huge question as to, well, what do you do about other extreme groups? What do you do about the deep roots of terrorism in an unstable Syria? And their statements last week about accepting the idea that Assad may remain in power I think suggests, it's hard to be sure, but I think it suggests that their plan is defeat ISIS, 
maybe then go after Al-Qaeda and then let Assad just run the show and he'll stop the terrorists from reemerging. And that's the plan. But it's kind of strange, too, that they seem to have accepted Assad as the ruler without asking for any concessions from him or Russia or Iran, which is another strange element of the current policy approach. Do you have any sense of what the Trump administration policy on Iran generally will look like? I mean, we heard throughout the Trump campaign extensive criticism of the deal that President Obama struck with Iran and and other countries. Do you what do you what do you what's the future of our relationship with Iran and and how big a part of that future is the Syrian conflict, do you think? Yeah, the Syrian conflict is just part of that. Um, I think one element here is that the Trump administration appears to want to work with Russia to defeat ISIS, partly as a bigger plan. Michael Flynn had certainly advocated this, and I think there are still others in the administration who do, to have a bigger plan to try to improve a U.S.-Russia partnership in order to pry Russia apart from its alliance with Iran. Um, I don't think that's going to happen, but I think that's what they're trying to do. Certainly, the Trump administration right now is a very anti-Iran administration. That's true in the White House, but it's also true, for example, with uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis um, and and others. So they're very wary of Iran. They um, Some of them take a very, very harsh line on Iran. I think the one of the bigger deals is really what happens with the nuclear deal that the Obama administration um, and several other countries signed with Iran called the JCPOA. Um, I think that the Trump administration will try very hard to undermine that deal. Um, I'm happy to provide more details on that if you want. Um, but I think what they're probably going to try to do is, is to really contain Iran, to push it back. We're already looking at providing more support to the Saudi-led coalition fighting in Yemen, which views itself as fighting against an Iranian proxy. Of course, that's more complicated. Um, so I think we're going to see a lot of different efforts to try to push back on Iran and try to contain what has, in fact, been growing power for Iran in the region in the last few years. So obviously there are questions about the Trump administration's policy toward Russia. Today we saw some language from the administration uh, condemning the chemical attacks in Syria and and saying that there is some responsibility on the part of Iran and Russia as as basically guarantors of the ceasefire that was negotiated in um, a few months ago. Do you think that there is any do you think that there are any kind of teeth behind those statements from the Trump administration? It It's hard for me to foresee a scenario where this White House and this administration really take on um, Russia with respect to Syria. Yeah, I don't think there's any teeth. Um, and, and there really is a problem here that last week when several Trump administration officials started making statements saying essentially that we had to accept the political reality of Assad in Syria. And they did all of this, but there's no public evidence that they got any, I mean, that that was a big deal for the United States to say that we accept the idea that Assad may remain in power. 
And to do that without any clear concessions from Russia or Iran um, was a little strange. So maybe there's something that I don't know going on behind closed doors. But that really aligns the United States much more with Russia and Iranian policy in Syria. And then, of course, we have this, this chemical weapons attack. It's kind of like the United States is complaining to Russia and Iran about the Assad regime, but we basically have already given up the leverage that we might have had with them. So it's hard to see how there is any real teeth behind this. What might provoke this kind of chemical weapons attack? Can you, and I know that I'm asking incredibly difficult questions and, you know, we're we're just speculating here, but why after a couple of years, I mean, is this a test of the Trump administration, you think, the the use of chemical weapons? It's really hard to say. Um, So this is in Idlib province, which is one of the areas where rebel forces are still fairly entrenched. Um, I don't, I mean, on the one hand, yeah, it might be a test of the Trump administration. The problem is, though, this is not a, a incident on its own. Um, the Assad regime has used chemical weapons attacks a number of times over the years. Um, primarily, most of them have been chlorine gas attacks, which is easier to make. This one and some previous ones appear to be nerve agent, probably sarin gas. Um, but it's really part, if you look at sort of the details of how they did it, it was clearly focused on civilians. Um, I don't know all the details, but I think there was a hospital involved. This is classic Assad regime during the Civil War tactics. They really hit civilians in rebel-held areas very hard. They go very specifically after hospitals and rescue workers. And this is part of their broader strategy of trying to make life in rebel-held areas just completely unbearable. Looking forward, we have a very limited reaction from our Secretary of State today. We have a statement from the White House. If you had to venture a guess as to sort of what happens next in terms of the United States' response to the chemical weapons use, what would your what would your guess be? Not much. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't think it's going to be much. I think, I mean, I take them at their word. Um, they say that they're focused on fighting ISIS. Um, and they are. And, and by all means, we should be fighting ISIS. But the real issue is the Assad regime plays a major role in fueling ISIS and will play a major role in fueling al-Qaeda or whatever horrible thing supplants ISIS. Um, So fundamentally, there needs to be a longer-term resolution to the Syrian civil war. And that longer-term resolution cannot be that Bashar al-Assad controls most of Syria. That's just not... And I say that both because I think that's an amoral policy, but also it's a really ineffective one. I don't think that there's any way you have stability. Um, And this has just been far too brutal of a war. Even people who are exhausted and worn out, I don't think would accept that. Um, It very well is possible that the regime would have to be one of 
several stakeholders in a future Syria. Um, but I think the administration should be saying, yes, by all means, fight ISIS. But there also needs to be... This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special. And they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Serious consideration given to what comes after that. And there needs to be an understanding that the United States will have to play some sort of a role because nobody else will. Well, Carrie, I really appreciate your time. I know this is a difficult subject and I think this will be very helpful. Well, thank you so much, Beth. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. And as always, I I love hearing your podcast. Thank you. I really appreciate that. So Dante, I really 
appreciated Carrie's perspective, I think that it's important for us to constantly keep in mind the complexity of what's going on in Syria. That said, I am straight up over hearing from our leadership that this is hard and we can't do anything because it's hard. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely eternally frustrating, especially when, you know, the first statement from the White House officially yesterday was kind of a a point of the finger backward at the Obama administration. You know, we, we definitely know that the history books will not view the Obama administration's approach to Syria in a positive light, and that continues to play out daily. But it, it seems to be a fly-by-night strategy or, or non-strategy from the White House kind of daily on what their approach is to the Assad regime, uh, what their approach is to Syria, how those uh, how the Russian influence um, is playing in all this. It just kind of seems that they don't have a wrangle on it themselves, but they've had a lot of time to think about it. And I would expect a little bit more preparation on, you know, what the next steps forward are from the president and his national security team. Well, if you think about it, some critical pieces of his national security team didn't get popped into place until the past couple of weeks. And so I think General McMaster is going to be an important element of this whole situation. Um, I certainly hope so. It seems like he's taking the reins more. We had some good news out of the Trump administration today in that Steve Bannon is no longer going to be sitting on the National Security Council. And all the reporting that I've seen on that indicates that that is General McMaster's decision and preference and that he's structuring this again the way the National Security Council was set up under President Obama rather than the what sounds like an unintentional demotion of some of the military members of the NSC by the Trump administration. Absolutely and and that move is really not surprising you know he's he's wanting to put the the Joint Chiefs of Staff back into their rightful positions and I think it's really going to take you know a collective effort you know, on the parts of of all of the all of the professionals um, dealing with foreign policy right now, including the State Department, including you know the National Security Council, including Nikki Haley, I really think that those folks need to at some point get in a room together and really figure out what what this administration's response to the civil war in Syria and the Assad regime is going to be, because more inaction is is only going to exacerbate this problem. It's only going to make the American public more frustrated, and it's only going to frustrate our allies more when the the global community recognizes and has done great things to sort of accommodate the best way possible uh, the refugee crisis and, and, you know, some of the other aftermath effects of the Syrian conflict. But the U.S. has kind of been lagging behind in that respect for a number of years, and I think it's finally time for us to step up in a leadership role and really take charge with, you know, with some definition. And I think that's a, it's a big opportunity for President Trump. I real, I really think it is, and, you know, I hope for the sake of Syria and for the sake of our country that he gets it right. Here's what I want to know: How bad does it have to get for us to do something? And to do something real and something meaningful. When you read about what happened this week, the fact that 
chemical weapons are being used against children for the second time, not the first for time. The we weren't blindsided time. by this. This is the second time. And the reports of it are just sickening to read. Horrific. But I'm making myself read them because you know what? We need to. We need to understand that this turns people's pupils into pinpoints, that their lungs are foaming, that you know, that children who are being rescued by workers who are getting the poison on them as they're trying to save their lives. We need to know that level of detail because seriously, how much are we going to take before we step in? I think if President Trump went to Congress and asked for the authorization of use of military force and then told the American people, I will not stand by while innocent civilians are poisoned in this way. And no, we are not the world's police, but at some point we are the the most powerful humanitarian force on the globe. And by God, on my watch, this is not going to happen. I, I don't think that he would meet with much resistance in in the United States Senate or among the public. I think his approval rating would go through the roof. That is not the reason to do it. But if that is his motivating force, fine, because it's time. I just, I can't wrap my brain around the fact that we are not doing anything about this. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, we already had a, you know, we already had congressional inaction in 2013 when kind of like the first red line, quote unquote, unquote red line um, situation went down. And I, I just don't think it would happen again, especially if the president approached it with that kind of conviction. And on top of that, yeah, I agree with you completely that the details need to be out there. I think I texted you um, like a month or so ago when I was trying to watch uh, a documentary on Syria and uh, one of my family members was like, can we watch something a little bit lighter? And, uh, you know, that's kind of the privilege that we have in America. We can just change the channel. We can, we can turn something off. We can look away, but, um, that, that's a special privilege that we have living in the country that we do. But in order for, in order for us to really coalesce as a public and as a government around a solution, I think all of the details, we need to see the faces. We need to know the details. We need to be intimately involved with the suffering that, that these people are going through. And I read a tweet today that just sort of put it all in perspective for me. And it's and it said, if your government was gassing you, would you try and leave? And the next question is, it, would you try and flee to a place that was a beacon of freedom? And, you know, it just kind of like sunk in like that is that is exactly what's happening. You know, these people are being gassed by their own government they're being slaughtered by their own government and all that is all they're trying to do is seek refuge in the few places on earth that they view you know safely or the few places on earth left that they view safely and um you know like i said i really hope this administration gets it right and it's not it's the the chemical weapons are horrific he's been starving people he purposefully keeps medical teams from reaching places where civilians desperately need help Mm -hmm. the water supply i mean it's just it blows my mind the level of crisis that's been happening for six years there all sorts Um, of un aid has been has been attacked and and uh airstrikes have 
um, airstrikes have taken out, you know, uh, hospitals and all sorts of, you know, sanctuaries where, where people were getting help. Um, so all of that infrastructure is, is, you know, tenuous at best. And then behind all of this is, you know, a direct, direct involvement from Russia backing, backing this regime. I mean, they are at this point, they, they have to be considered one and the same. And so given the administration's currently friendly stance towards our position with Russia in terms of, you know, what Trump's version of a reset might be, they have to absolutely be prepared with whatever military action might ensue in the next, you know, three years that Russia will be involved and will absolutely have a say in in what happens in Syria because the, they are, they're backing the Assad regime. I mean, it, it, they are one and the same now. And the administration absolutely has to view them that way. If not, I think they're making a big mistake. I was happy to see Nikki Haley, the ambassador to the United Nations today, speak with clarity and conviction and accountability directed at Russia. I thought that her speech had a lot of echoes of Samantha Powers, who was the UN ambassador under President Obama, who made a very emotional plea to the United Nations about Syria as well. I hope that unlike Samantha Powers, she will find an administration willing to act on those words, you know, not just send her out for the public relations moment, but to to back that up. And I understand that President Obama genuinely wanted a diplomatic solution. And we can debate that all day. Here as we mm-hmm. stand now, what we've learned is that there are not trustworthy players at the table to make a diplomatic solution happen. They have Agreed. shown us over and over and over again that that is not going to work in this situation. Agreed. As long as Vladimir Putin is still holding a no-fly zone above, uh, above Syria, we can't really have a diplomatic solution. So, you know? Another- right? like, that's, that's as simple as it gets, really. I think that's right. Another foreign policy crisis that the Trump administration is confronting right now is that North Korea continues to test fire missiles. And Secretary Rex, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, who is, you know, becoming kind of the Clarence Thomas of the State Department and that he doesn't have a lot to say about anything ever, issued the most bizarre statement on North Korea that I've ever seen. I mean, he, he essentially said the time for talking about North Korea is over. We have no further comment. Yeah, that's uh, one of the most surprising statements I've seen from somebody who really kind of needs to like, uh, you know, I think for the sake of everybody questioning Rex Tillerson's qualifications coming into him taking this job, and then, you know, uh, how quiet he's been and his adversarial relationship with the media, um, in his travels. Like, I think Rex needs some good press. You know what I mean? Like he needs a moment. Um, yesterday was definitely not that moment. And I think I, I tweeted to, to the uh, show account last night that, you know, I couldn't help but think of John Kerry just saying, yeah, no comment. Uh, Hillary Clinton saying no comment, uh, Colin Powell saying no comment, Condi Rice saying no comment. I mean, I just don't think any of them would have ever thought it appropriate when we have a, you know, a potential nuclear crisis 
in Asia going on to just be like, yeah, we, we've kind of said all there is to say on, on this matter. Absolutely, that's just an unacceptable response. And I think Rex Tillerson, again, needs a moment and he really needs to step up. The rumors going into this were that he never really wanted this job. And I think he's even on record saying that he never wanted this job. And it's kind of playing out. And if he doesn't want to be here, I really want somebody as our chief diplomat who does. (laughs) Um, Well, I agree with that. And there are like bizarre stories about how standoffish he is with employees of the State Department. He is showing himself to be incapable of handling a press conference. And I understand that this is a different world that he's just been plunged into. Oh, yeah. But but man, show some chops or get out of the way so that somebody who has them can, because this this is crazy. And I understand the thinking also that diplomacy has not been effective with North Korea. Mm-hmm. OK, but let's not keep from the American people a secret what we're going to do about it, because I do think the American people need some comfort. Kim Jong Un mm-hmm. is a very scary figure to me because he's so unpredictable and the culture around him in North Korea and the culture that was around his father in North Korea is so difficult for us as Americans. I think to understand we have, we have sort of the opposite issue of North Korea, right? Like we, our sport is tearing our leaders down Mm -hmm. instead of deifying them, which is more how it works in North Korea in a coerced way. Mm-hmm. And so I think in in part because the culture is so inaccessible to us and so unimaginable to us, what he could be cooking up over there is terrifying. And and at the very least, some statement from our secretary of state or, or and or the White House saying, listen, we know that this sounds awful and it's unacceptable and we have it under control. And here's what we're going to do about it would be very helpful. Yeah, of course. And I think, I, I, you know, I think if this was to, to use a historical moment and, uh, you know, my parents were born in Cuba. So this is something that gets talked about a lot in our family because it, you know, it's just part of part of our heritage and our history. But, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis, if this was 90 miles away, there, it, it would be it would be the only thing we're talking about. Um, So I think I think proximity, you know, proximity has a lot to do with sort of the uh, the lack lackadaisical um, attitude uh, from the administration towards North Korea and from the general public. Um, But again, if this was 90 miles off the coast of Florida, it would be all hell breaking loose. So we can't lose sight that, you know, this has happened before. We've had a threat like this before. And you know, our government moved mountains to make sure that it was diffused. We need to be students of history and and understand that this situation is as serious as a heart attack and it and it needs to be handled delicately because our country knows better than anybody what the the gravity of nuclear weapons and we should not treat this situation lightly at all and no comment is absolutely unacceptable. <laughs> Yeah, delicately, but decisively, I would say. For sure. I mean, I think I'm revealing on this episode of Pantsy Politics, I don't have any nuance about foreign policy, typically. Like, I I can go rounds of domestic policy all day and come around to how reasonable people disagree. And I see that with foreign policy as well. 
But I think one of my chief frustrations uh, with the Obama administration is turning into one of my chief nightmares with the Trump administration. I really have felt the lack of a coherent foreign policy and a coherent approach to international affairs. And I think that came from a well-intended place with President Obama. And I think it came Mm -hmm. from a place of genuinely wanting to be a peacemaker, genuinely wanting to handle the world um, in a sensitive way. And I say sensitive, not in the way that conservatives talk about liberal snowflakes. Like, I don't mean that in a, in a, degrading or condescending way at all. I think he wanted to do it differently. And, yeah, yeah, definitely. And he, and he did it from an informed place and tried. But it, in my judgment, it did not work. And yeah. I'm very concerned that now we have someone who is who is completely uninterested in sensitivity, but also just lost. And, yeah. and lost at a time that we can't afford to have our president be lost. Yeah, that was pretty clear today when you saw um, his his joint press conference with um, the King of Jordan. J- the side by side was pretty drastic. Um, Trump Trump is kind of ad libbing, and again, that that works fine for the campaign. But when it comes to our standing as as world leaders, and you know the the very stressful, sensitive, and detailed nature which these matters need to be handled in. Um, there's really no room for ad-libbing. There's no room for incompetence. Like, I, as much as anybody, really want to see some clear focus from the president. And, and I want to I want to know, I want to go to bed at night knowing that this is keeping him up. He's doing everything he can to catch up to speed on what he doesn't know about these matters. And he's leaning on the very experienced people like H.R. McMaster, like General Mattis, like John Kelly, that are going to help carry us through, you know, a really stressful situation with North Korea, a stressful situation with Iran, a stressful situation with Russia and Syria. I just want to see that level of detail from him. And and I know that, you know, I, I might sound like a broken record of trying to continue to hold out some level of of hope for competence, but it can't go on like this forever, can it? Like, at some point the the crap is going to hit the fan and and we're and we need somebody who's like going to rise to the occasion and i i guess i'm just waiting for that rise to the occasion moment and i might always wait for that um but i'm hoping that the the pieces around him who absolutely know the gravity of what's going on on the world stage right now take the lead if, get it if together y'all that's to. the message yeah, get it get together, it together. Well, focus is not President Trump's forte, which we saw in his interview today with the New York Times. We're recording on Wednesday, which I think is important to note because God knows what happens between now and when we publish this episode. But he talked with the New York Times um, on Bill O'Reilly and defending Bill O'Reilly from the harassment charges and saying he never should have settled that lawsuit. Um, He had a wide-ranging discussion, as he tends to do. I've heard him talk this week about the Electoral College victory again, which I think... Okay, North Korea is firing test missiles and Syria is um, the biggest humanitarian crisis ever. But please tell me more about your surprising Electoral College victory. But I wanted to ask you, Dante. Historic Electoral College victory. Right, right. Don't get it twisted. The the deck is always stacked against Republicans. Everyone said it was impossible. Mm -hmm. I do want to hear, Dante, your thoughts about President Trump's 
accusation that Susan Rice, who was at NSA under President Obama, committed a crime by allegedly unmasking Trump uh, transition officials from uh, incidental intelligence collection. Once again, I think, you know, the president has has thrown out a very lofty allegation um, without really unpacking the details of what's going on. I, I don't sit on the National Security Council, and I never will, but I've been trying my best to read up on this situation. So I think the first thing to kind of consider is that unmasking is not leaking. So I think that the two are being conflated, that her request to unmask, unmask certain individuals from raw intelligence is the same as leaking the names of those individuals. And from my understanding, those two things are completely separate. And even if, even if somebody comes up as the subject of um, un, unintended surveillance and, and they are unmasked, uh, that those matters can st- th- those names and those identities can still stay confidential um, within the channels that need to know. And then I think the second thing is that unmasking is a little bit more uh, frequent than we might think. So in 2015, um, according to a transparency report by the NSA, there were four four thousand two hundred ninety report reports that included. Um, identifying information about U.S. citizens under FISA's Section 702, um, which is the rule that allows for surveillance of non-U.S. individuals. And in 1,122 of those cases, the agency ultimately unmasked U.S. individuals in in those scenarios. So you know, 1,100 into 4,300, we're talking about like 25% of the time that the NSA thought there were there was significant foreign intelligence concern to unmask a U.S. individual in those in those circumstances. So even if Susan Rice did ask for for individuals in this uh, surveillance to be to be unmasked, it's something that happens pretty regularly. And even though she requested it, the NSA or the NSA would have to be the ones that authorize the unmasking. And I think Admiral Rogers said that there's only like 20 individuals within the agency that can even give that authorization. So if you're going down the conspiracy rabbit hole, you have to assume that if there was political gain on Susan Rice's part, then the NSA is also implicit in that political gain and that anything that they did was a crime other, you know, to, to assume that it's a crime is just not a failure to understand kind of like the bureaucracy of this all. This is another place where I just find myself thinking, where are the lawyers? Because the only thing for him to say right now is first to not say anything unless he's asked about it. And second, if he is asked about it to say, I trust that our Congress will investigate these matters fully and fairly and that the American people will receive good information at the conclusion of those investigations and be done. Stop. And, and I don't, and I don't think it's unreasonable for, you know, the Senate intelligence committee or the house intelligence committee to ask Susan Rice to come in and, 
um, and testify under oath about, you know, why she made these requests. Um, I think that's perfectly reasonable. I, I just am wondering when the accusations of political gain, like unmasking these individuals for political gain come into play, you have to kind of ask yourself two questions. A, she didn't know who she was unmasking before she asked. So the, you know, whatever, what those requests were made based on some standard of foreign, uh, of foreign intelligence relevancy, uh, before she knew who she was going to be learning the identity of. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Absolutely. And so if you're, if you're accusing political gain, you have to say, did she have some sort of foresight into who these people might be before she asked those questions or before she made those requests? And then secondly, if she got that information, that ill-gotten information for ill-gotten means, how were they used? Mm-hmm. How was this information distributed at for at the detriment of Donald Trump or for the benefit of of the Democratic Party? So I, I, I'm looking for that evidence. If she if she did, you know, if we're going to go down that that rabbit hole of this is a big conspiracy against Trump, how was that information used? Um, and that's something I'm still looking for. If if indeed. I was to believe, you know, the Trump side. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better? 
our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. If you are listening to this and feeling a little bit lost, I want to recommend that you go back and listen to our recent episode on FISA, where we did sort of a mini primer on what that process looks like. We talked about what unmasking means, what incidental collection means. It is complex, and I think we're getting a a nice public education. I, I wish that was happening under different circumstances. I would love to be having this discussion in the context of debating whether FISA should be reauthorized and, you know, kind of what the balance is in terms of our privacy and our national security. But unfortunately, uh, we're not having it in that context. Hopefully, we can all still learn something that helps us think through those larger issues when they come around. So yeah. we're uh, recording what I believe is going to be the longest briefcase in history, Dante. I want to um, I want to talk about Neil Gorsuch for just a second because okay. um, I know that you have strong opinions about this. Here's where I am. Did Mitch McConnell completely screw everyone over with the Merrick Garland situation? Unquestionably, yes. And I think that will be viewed by history as one of the most egregious partisan acts of, of, of our country's relatively young arc. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. um, and I think it's horrible and I don't have any excuses for it. I also think that what's going on with Neil Gorsuch right now from both parties is an abomination and a mockery of our progress process. And I think the hypocrisy from both parties is stunning. And I think the infighting within the Republican Party is on full display. I mean, today we had John McCain saying anyone who thinks that going nuclear, which means for, you know, for people who aren't following this closely, what's happening right now is that enough Democrats will vote against Neil Gorsuch being confirmed um, that he cannot be confirmed absent a change in the rules. And that is what is referred to as the nuclear option. Right now, you need 60 votes to confirm a Supreme Court justice. There are not 60 votes in the Senate for Neil Gorsuch. Going nuclear means that Mitch McConnell could have Republicans in the Senate vote to change the rules so that only a simple majority is required. You know, 51 and he votes. Ha- and- 
And he claims that he has the votes. And when Mitch McConnell tells you he has the votes, he has them. He has the votes. He has them. And you have John McCain saying this will irreparably harm the institution. And he said very plainly, you're an idiot if you think otherwise. He's also said that he'll vote with Mitch McConnell to do that, to get Gorsuch confirmed. And mm. and my feeling is, one, if these were my children, all of them would go to timeout. They would all be in trouble for this behavior. And two, this is why rules matter beyond their outcomes, because the precedent for this nuclear option was set when Republicans were being obstructionist about President Obama's judicial nominees in lower courts and Democrats Mm. decided to go nuclear on those lower court confirmations and change the rules to make it a simple majority. Now, at the root for all of our progressive listeners. Yep. Republicans are at the root of this. They started it. Fine. I totally concede it. It doesn't matter, though. It still takes us to this awful place if what happens is that this rule gets changed. Oh, yeah. And and, you know, to speak from from like the Democratic point of view, I'm kind of in I'm kind of in the minority right now within my, you know, my fellow Democrats, um, because I don't believe that the filibuster is a good idea because it set in motion this decision by Mitch McConnell to go nuclear. And above all, and above that, I think that was kind of an, an inevitable road that I saw from the beginning, like just having a lot of experience following politics and especially following the career of Mitch McConnell. If there are not laws in place to, to wrangle Mitch McConnell, he doesn't really give much of a damn for precedent or norms or, really what anybody thinks like if there if you give him an inch he will take a mile and i think he's proven that to us so i always saw gorsuch as he will be appointed it's going to be a net neutral spot on the court because of the the scalia vacancy and then on top of that you know i think the rationale for this like symbolic filibuster from the democrats has been oh well you don't want to alienate the base um and I just think at this point, if if you are scared of being primaried by your base because of a vote or a, because of not filibustering, or if you think that people are going to walk into a voting booth and say, man, I really, I really am going to vote my conscience here based on a uh, symbolic filibuster of a Supreme Court nominee that was going to get confirmed by any means necessary anyway, you're sorely mistaking where the values of your base are. Well, and, and, and you're also, I think, misjudging. Look, everybody in Congress right now is in a lose, 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 lose scenario because of the Trump administration. The, the yeah. board has been flipped in that way, right? I think the rules do not apply. So you, this is an ideal time for people to just do what they think is right. I, I agree. I, I just think that there, there's a lot of this talk within the Democratic Party of, you know, the base, the base, the base is energized. You don't want to lose that energy. You don't want to lose that momentum. And my argument to that point has always been the momentum from this filibuster will not carry into the midterm elections, and it certainly will not carry into 2020. Like we are, we are prisoners of the moment right now when it comes to 
the energy and the momentum. I think this is a this is a battle that was never going to be won by Democrats. It's a matter of voting power, and and it's a va- matter of voting math. And and the simple fact is that Mitch McConnell was always get going to get to his voting math no matter what we did as Democrats. And you just have to take that L and move on because you really only get to do this once. You get to do, you get to filibuster this once before you know, figuratively and literally Mitch McConnell blows this to smithereens with a nuclear vote. And I just feel like Gorsuch was the wrong guy to do it. in. you know, yes, there was some, he had some questionable decisions, but at the same time, you can't look at a guy that was uh, appointed unanimously by, um, nominated by George W. Bush and appointed unanimously to the 10th circuit by the Senate, a hundred to zero, 10 years ago. So if he was good enough to get through 100 to 0 10 years ago, what has changed in 10 years? Yes, some key decisions maybe, but I just don't think you can get there ideologically and claim that this filibuster is solely an ideological move based on jurisprudence. I think it's a reaction to the way that Merrick Garland was treated, and there was no way the Democrats were going to win this battle. Um, uh, I was in the live to fight another day camp and Gorsuch will be confirmed this week. And I think Democrats just kind of need to move on and focus on, you know, focus on reorganizing the party and coalescing around a party of, uh, being a party of economic solutions for all Americans and, you know, holding up equal rights under the federal government, which are the two reasons why I'm a Democrat. Um, and I don't think we did, we've done a good enough job of that over the last eight years outside of the executive branch. So that's where I want my party to be focusing on. The Supreme Court was a loss from the beginning. The things that are being said about the Supreme Court are, are really made up standards right now. Right. So the They're idea. They're not in law. <laughs> no, I mean, Neil Gorsuch at least is a real judge. I mean. There's no requirement that the person even be a lawyer to be appointed to the Supreme Court. There's been reporting that that President Trump has considered appointing Andrew Napolitano to the Supreme Court. I mean, yeah. he could he could have named a, a wide range of people far less qualified for that spot than Judge Gorsuch. This Agreed. notion of a stolen seat, again, I get it. I think Merrick Garland ought to be sitting on the Supreme Court right now. If I had been in the he Senate, I would have should. met with him. I would have voted him out of committee if I'd had the opportunity, and I would have voted to confirm him. And because, all of the qualification merits that you can say about Neil Gorsuch, you can absolutely say about Merrick Garland. You absolutely can. And I do not believe that the Supreme Court pick is an ideological pick understanding that this, the court has enormous influence on policy, um, I don't think that it should. And so I, yeah. I absolutely believe Merrick Garland should be in that seat. But the idea that the seat has been stolen, first, the Republicans' idea that they were entitled to an election before that seat was, con- was filled was insane. Absolutely insane. Then, then the idea that a Democrat is now entitled to fill that seat because it should have been President Obama's pick, I believe, is insane. This that's whole not concept, real life. That's not real life. This whole concept of because I guarantee you that Democrats, there will be cases on executive power that get to the Supreme Court. 
And we do and you're not want, want Neil Gorsuch on your side. You, you a, will. A, you're going to want Gorsuch on your side because because a, a an originalist is always going to point to the Constitution, and the Constitution was written to curb executive power. So that's my number one. Like, if I was to give my idea of like why I think Neil Gorsuch won't be so bad is if you're actually if if you're a liberal and you're actually worried about executive overreach from the Trump administration, you're going to want a guy like Neil Gorsuch in the seat, and you're going to want a guy like Neil Gorsuch in the seat that is going to go back to a framing idea of the constitution rather than a living document idea. And that's not going to work out for you in every instance. I'm just going to tell liberals that right now, but in the instance of executive overreach, it absolutely will. And like you just said, you're not going to want a four, four court because then you're tossing it back down to the lower courts. And we're seeing right now with, with Donald Trump's executive orders on, on travel and immigration, exactly what kind of power the lower courts can have um, you know, and, and if those rulings stay, a lot of people disagree with the rulings of the Ninth Circuit right now. If that if that ruling stays on a four four court, then you're living with that decision. So I think you know we got to think big picture here. And you could be living with conflicting decisions from the lower courts because people exactly. are very good at forum shopping the circuits and figuring out where they can get the outcome that they want. So I just don't see a world in which we say, well, it's a stolen seat, so we're going to wait four more years to put anybody on the Supreme Court. That It doesn't make sense to me. And this yeah. idea that he needs to be a mainstream pick, that's also not a constitutional standard. I wish that were so, okay? And I wish that we had a consensus. in the world of law? Like what right. is main, that's what I want somebody to define for me. Right. What is mainstream in the world of law? Because the law is the law is constantly changing. The law is up to interpretation by a number of different courts, and the Supreme Court, you know, has the Supreme Court has upheld decisions that that Neil Gorsuch has been a part of unanimously before. The Supreme the Supreme Court has tossed out decisions that Neil Gorsuch has been a part of before. I think when things get to the Supreme Court, you can they should be really tough. And you know, so to say that Gorsuch was part of a unanimous decision that got tossed by the by SCOTUS, that's exactly how the court system is supposed to work. So I just don't know where this idea of like a straight down the middle of the road, never gonna piss off a conservative, never gonna piss off a liberal judge exists. If you can find one for me, I'd love to have him or her on the court. But I just don't think that's going to be possible. Absolutely. Okay, we've got to do a little bit of feedback because, sure. again, longest briefcase in fancy politics history. There's just too All much right. going on right now, y'all. It's it's um, yeah. hard to keep up with. Okay, we got a really interesting and smart and thought-provoking email from our listener, Sandy, about regulations. And Sandy, in her email, describes how she has worked in a number of regulated industries and her life experience has not borne out the narrative that regulations are job killers, uh, business killers. And so she's, she's asking, why, why do we have this talking point? Why does anti-regulation rhetoric exist? Does it have any grounds? Is it just a rallying 
cry, some attempt to beef up some stocks or something, she says. Once I stopped and thought about it in my own life experiences and realized it didn't match my life experiences, I got confused and concerned. I think that is a really good uh, framing of an important question. I'll give you my perspective as a conservative. And first, let me say I, I aggravate everyone because I, I am a conservative and I am also not a sort of Freedom Caucus Ted Cruz style conservative, right? I think government has a role. I just think that it is not the first resort role, especially at the federal level. What I see with regulations, many of which I absolutely support. So again, I don't think all regulations are bad. I don't think the administrative state should be uh, dismantled completely. I think there is a role for federal agencies to play. I also think that we have over time um, come to think of those federal agencies as our first problem solvers instead of our last problem solvers. And the impact of that is that anytime you're developing a rule, and you can think about this at any level, right? A rule in a classroom, a rule for your children, a policy in a business context, every rule necessarily has artificial elements involved. And the more power wielded by the room, the rule maker, the more consequential those artificial elements become. So with regulations, I think we have many well-intended regulations that in some circumstances go too far, in some circumstances don't go far enough. And that's why, in my view, the closer to the issue you can get, the more effective you're going to be in dealing with that issue. I grew up on a dairy farm in western Kentucky, a very small dairy farm. I distinctly remember in the 90s when Al Gore started working hard on environmental issues, the regulations that my family farm was subjected to ramped up significantly. And some of those regulations, I'm sure, were fine and helpful. And listen, every family farm wants to produce quality milk, right? <laughs> like, everyone wanted things to be clean and safe for drinking. And and that concern has only grown with time as people are more interested in local food and organic products. So it, it wasn't like we were sitting around thinking, leave me alone, I'm going to do everything in the cheapest way possible, and I don't care what the product is like. That's absolutely not what was going on. I think that kind of intention is what a lot of people think is happening in all business when they create regulations. But it wasn't happening, right, in my family farm or many others. But they were swept up in these rules that were created for massive farming operations that produced massive amounts of animal waste and all kinds of other issues. And so the effects were devastating for a lot of farms. My dad somehow kept our farm going during those years and made the astronomical for us investments required to comply with some of those regulations. But I really don't believe that the waste being produced by our family farm was anywhere on a scale where the solution created by policymakers made sense. And so my issue with regulations is not the fact of their existence or some all government is bad government that needs to get out of my life and leave me alone. It's just my sense that often solutions are better handled um, first being motivated by people's genuine desire to do the right thing. 
Second, by their desire to be competitive in a marketplace that does punish you when you do bad things for the most part. And sometimes more effectively than a regulatory regulatory authority can. And thirdly, by my belief that you you just it's hard to get rules right. It's hard to make good policy. And so I think we should be cautious and careful. And also, once we make policy, it is very hard to undo it if we come up with a better idea or realize that it wasn't working. Because if you think about the, the Shout PR out HCA, consequences. HCA. Yeah, exactly. AHCA, Once it's know, done, like, it's done. So Dante, yeah. that's my perspective as a conservative. I'd love to hear your reaction to that. Well, I, I don't necessarily disagree with, with what you said. You know, I think, um, you know, from it, like you said, good policy is hard to make and, and bad policy is pretty easy to make uh, as well. Um, we just had what I would consider bad policy um, when it comes to deregulation signed into law this week by President Trump, um, you know, allowing Internet service providers to sell your Internet history to the highest bidder. Um, and we had, you know, party line votes in, in the House and the Senate. Um, on on that bill. And I think that's a case where, you know, yeah, wh- where does de- where does deregulation help there? Who is it helping? Um, it, it's only helping what I would imagine to be the media giants, you know, the AT&Ts, the Comcasts. Um, that doesn't help constituents. That uh, if, if you're talking about regulation from a job creating or killing standpoint, how does that how does that create a job? I wonder. Um, so that's kind of where I've been looking at regulations from for like recently, um, is can it help create a job? Can it, is it a job killer? Cause that's kind of the way the debate is framed. Um, I was reading that the average small business can spend up to $83,000, um, to, to stay regulatorily compliant, uh, year in and year out. At a small business like mine, that's an employee. You know, that's a pretty that's a pretty well paid employee. I work at a tech company, and you know that that would be like a mid level employee at my company coming in. So, um, you know, with better tax reform and things like that, uh, a simpler tax code that costs less for businesses to comply with, I'm all for that. Absolutely, all for that. So, rolling back regulations for me is not um, a matter of a liberal or a conservative viewpoint. It's just a matter of benefit. Um, and that cost benefit analysis has to come on a case by case basis, I feel. So uh, I sort of treat it like you, I'm looking at the efficacy and I'm looking at, you know, who's help, who's helped and who's hurt. And sometimes those answers aren't super simple to figure out. So I think we better leave it there because we are uh, way out of time. We also got a message from Jose about Equal Pay Day that I want to take up next week and a message from Katie about talking to your kids about the news in response to our conversation with Tish. So when Sarah's back, we'll address both of those. Thank you all so much for hanging with us. We always appreciate it. Uh, We want to thank Elizabeth for becoming a new subscriber to Pantsuit Politics, Elise for her generous contribution. And as always, we appreciate all of our subscribers and especially our all-stars, Melissa, Tracy, Tracy, Ashley, Audrey, Christine, Nicolette, Paige, Sydney, and Priya. Until next time, keep it nuanced, y'all.